Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Welcome to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcasts. It is great to be here for our inaugural episode with John Frankel, a proud card-carrying member of Park Avenue Synagogue. A quality of his, an achievement of his that is interestingly not in his bio. His bio begins with John Frankel joined the award-winning cast of Real Sports with Brian Gumbel in the spring of 2006 as a correspondent. Frankel's experience in hard news and sports television make him a perfect fit for the show's intelligent and unique look at athletics and the surrounding issues that affect the games and its athletes. Among his most impactful stories on real sports were the profile of rehabilitated baseball star Josh Hamilton, the use of performance-enhancing drugs in horses, the unique bond shared by George and Kobe Carl, an investigation into the death of boxer Arturo Gatti, and so, so many other award-winning episodes and awards. It's really a great pleasure to welcome my dear friend and dear congruent, John Frankel, to be in dialogue on issues as they relate to sports, the Jewish community, morality, and the world at large. Welcome, John. Thank you. Yeah, I was queuing. I'm in the radio booth. Let's have sound effects. We'll do the old, we'll do the, old <laughs> the, the applause <laughs> is there, and it is real, and it is heartfelt. John, just by way of introduction, I, I see you in synagogue, but uh, you have this, and you have this profile with real sports. Um, can you share for a few minutes how, how the story happened? How did you find yourself in uh, sports journalism? Uh, sure. In short, I, when I was coming out of high school here in New York City, I had two designs in life. One was to play college football and one was to be a broadcaster in some fashion. I didn't know what exactly that meant. And so I chose Syracuse University, which has the distinguished Newhouse School of Communications. And I went to Syracuse as a recruited walk-on to play linebacker, um, which people find hard to imagine today when they see me, given that I'm about 40 pounds lighter than I once was. But with the wisdom of my father in my back pocket, who said, choose a place where you will still be okay and happy if football doesn't work out, how prophetic he was, and football didn't work out the way I would have liked because of injury. And so there I was at Newhouse and got a wonderful education and followed in the footsteps of some very distinguished broadcasters like Bob Costas, um, Len Berman, Ted Koppel, Marv Albert. I could go on and on and on. And names that people would know today, Sean McDonough, Mike Tirico, um, Ian Eagle, all came out of that school. Anyway, I, I worked for Bob Costas in my first job out of school, another Syracuse alum, obviously. And um, he, I was producing radio shows, and then I did local television as a local sportscaster, joined the Today Show, worked at the networks for a while. And then in 2006, having worked and met uh, Brian Gumbel back at, uh, in the mid-90s on the Today Show, um, Brian had started Real Sports at HBO back in 95. And uh, at that point, I was still too young, I think too green. But as the years went on, I, I really was eager to work on the show. And it finally came to fruition in 2006. 
Was Fabulous. that fast enough? That was fast enough. That was great. That's I about how fast it seems like it's gone by, right. actually. I, I could learn how to speak a little more quickly from you. Uh, John, just tell me a bit about the, the, the process. How do you find a story on real sports? How do you... Uh, identify what is is worthy of it. It's sort of these long segments of sports journalism, um, not just a quick, uh, you know, game the other night. How, how, how do you pick your stories? So I, I think just to give people an understanding, if they haven't seen our show, the, the line that we always use is, have you seen 60 Minutes? We're the 60 Minutes of sports. I mean, that's how people have always sort of defined us. And that is, is that all our sports have a, all our stories have a genesis and origin in sports. But then oftentimes there's a very loose thread um, that ties it to sports. We really do go out on the, on a limb on some of these stories and they're both human interest stories and their profiles and their investigative pieces as well. And they can deal with anything from head trauma to drugs in sports um, to, you know, the gang influence in sports goes on and on. How do we come up with stories? We, we are very lucky to have an incredible, small, but incredible staff of producers who work very hard. And I would say that one of the things that they do, if we're not necessarily breaking a story, what they are doing in a, in a very successfully is they're taking what seem to be trends. They're connecting dots. They might see an article in this publication, another article someplace else, and then a third. And they say, wait a minute, I, I keep reading about this issue. And what is what is it about this issue and what goes beyond just the one line of this story? And I'll give you an example. So a bunch of years ago, I read a small item in Sports Illustrated um, about a high school football coach down in Arkansas named Kevin Kelly. And the story, in short, was about the fact that he never hunted, that he always went for it on fourth down. And that was based in the numbers. So on the face of it, we could have just done this story about this guy who doesn't punt. But what we did is we said, okay, what's interesting about this? How do we get to the next layer? How do we peel back the onion? And the onion in this case is, well, this is sort of like Moneyball. This is the way that baseball is beginning mm -hmm. to go. Analytics, the way the world is going. And so um, we, we looked at Moneyball, and then we, looked, we went to an economist at the University of Chicago, a guy named Toby Moskowitz would make for a very good congregant if he didn't now live up in New Haven. Um, but, but Toby was one of the leading economists in the world and, and had done a lot about sports. And so we, again, we didn't just make it about this one coach. We looked at the bigger picture of why professional coaches aren't going for it on fourth down and, and what are the numbers behind it. And that's how you get a little bit deeper. How do we find the stories? Um, it, they can come from anywhere. Uh, you know, I right. recently did a story that it's, it's on, I say it's airing now, of course, that doesn't mean anything in today's world. But most recently, I did a story about a woman named Kirstie Ennis, who is a former Marine um, who lost a leg and has now climbed six of the seven summits in the world, the highest peaks on their respective seven continents. And I got that story because a friend of mine stopped me on a street corner and said, oh, I should have invited you for dinner the other night. I had this, we had this lovely woman over for, for dinner and here's her story. And I was so taken that I went home and looked it up and I shot an email off to one of our producers mm -hmm. and I said, here's a story for us. And then sure enough, we did it. And it was amazing. Amazing. So I have uh, about 25 uh, questions for you, but I'm only going to get to about six of them. And we're going to do this sort of rapid fire, not long segment, but issues that I think a, a sports journalist like you and a rabbi like me, sort of a human interest, moral dimensions, not so much who's going to win the Super Bowl, but questions that I think have 
a, a, a valence to them that might be interested to uh, people listening. So can I number ask you one, one question first? You can ask me anything. If you have 25 <laughs> questions for me, how many questions do you have for God? <laughs> More questions. God, God has a lot of answering to do. Maybe, maybe I'll be invited to Real Sports and that'll be a chance to uh, ask the rabbi questions. So um, I had the pleasure of recently going to my, my daughter uh, is a student at University of Michigan. And as I was watching um, a game, I, I was just struck by the industry of college football and the millions, probably billions of dollars from the vendors to the media to the um, sort of skybox seats and everything. And the college players themselves, the, the men on the field, in this case, college football, they're not getting paid. Or now there's actually been a massive uh, shift the NIL, the name image likeness for college athletes. So there's been news this last year. And I'm just wondering, John, how do you make sense of this world where um, billions of dollars are made on the backs, as it were, of unpaid players and, 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 and how you can frame that issue for our listeners? Sure. Um, the name image likeness for people who don't understand for the longest time, the NCAA has sort of hidden behind this veil of amateurism. And, and that's how they have framed college athletics and that it would compromise the integrity and the amateur status of college sports. Of course, most people who follow college sports know that to be ludicrous, that these athletes are spending incredible number of hours each week. It's basically holding down another full-time job along with being a student. And we've done pieces about this, about you know spending in excess of 40 hours. The short answer is this, Rabbi, I do believe that college athletes should be compensated. Once I say that, I do not know how to implement it because it, it opens up a whole can of worms that I don't have the solutions for. And should the field hockey player get paid as much as the starting quarterback at the University of Michigan? Should the center get paid as much as the starting quarterback at the University? I don't know the answer. I don't know how it works if you're a college athlete in Syracuse, New York, where the cost of living and the slice of pizza might be a little bit less than if you play for UCLA or USC and you live in Westwood or downtown Los Angeles. So I don't have the answers. But the name image likeness changed the landscape considerably. And what that did was, based on a Supreme Court um, decision last July, so July of 21, it basically opened the floodgates. And, and the court said that you couldn't, you couldn't base it under any other condition in any other area that this was a workforce and nobody gets to get away with not paying its workforce. And that was it. And there had been a number of lawsuits that had been in the in the channels for a while. One of them that had been brought and was the lead plaintiff was a guy named Ed O'Bannon who had played basketball at UCLA. And what he had long wanted, along with many others, was that the NCAA should share all these revenues, whether it was the, the, the ticket gate, the, the revenues from, from uh, the licensing fees, to, which run into the billions of dollars with the TV networks, and on and on and on, the selling of jerseys and sodas and, and you name it, parking. And the, the interesting thing to me about the NIL, the name image likeness deal that is now in place, which allows athletes to go out and use their name, their image, their likeness. Mm -hmm. with and I anybody. imagine that has impact 
on the markets, right? That if you're playing for Nebraska, it's different than if you're playing for UCLA. No question. And and so now these athletes can go to either the local pizza shop or bigger chains. And now athletes are doing national advertising for Dr. Pepper, which is one of the big sponsors, and they can make their own money. So what's interesting to me about it is that the NCAA sort of got away with laughing all the way to the bank because they still haven't shared any of the money in their coffers. All they said mm. was to the athletes, go out and do it. Surprisingly, a lot of the female athletes have actually had more success than the male athletes for this reason. They are as good, if not better, at social media. And the way right. the world is moving now, the advertisers and the sponsors want that reach, those influencers. And the athletes right. have a great deal of exposure. Right. There was some recent press on that about uh, whether it was or wasn't appropriate of, of female athletes to present sexualized images of themselves and, and, and a whole world of that, which, which actually brings me um, in a very circuitous way, but I'm a rabbi, so that's how I work, uh, to the question of the line between personality and athleticism. And um, I just recently gave a sermon on Kyrie Irving, the point for the Brooklyn uh, Nets and, uh, you know, controversy surrounding him posting um, a, a, a film with anti-Semitic content in it. And the, the, so less about Irving, but just a question of what our expectations of athletes are, right? Do we, is it fair to expect of them a certain moral behavior, um, certain, I mean, criminality is one thing, but, um, or is that an unfair expectation of someone who's really hired to shoot baskets, to be a defensive guard or otherwise? Um, and, and I was just curious to get your thoughts on, on that question. Do we, uh, do we, is it a mistake to look at great athletes as great role models? I will, I will give you one personal um, experience that I had many years ago when I was working as a local sportscaster in Miami, and it was after a Miami Heat-Phoenix Suns game, and I was about to interview Charles Barkley right at his locker along with a bunch of other people from the media, and he had a can of beer in his hand, and we had the cameras rolling. He said, hold on, hold on, let me put this down. All these parents think I'm some damn role model. Um, and... <laughs> It was it was great Charles Barkley theater, right. as always. Um, I do think, and look, you can look at the history of sports, and it's littered with people who have chosen different paths, right? You grew up being a Dodgers fan, so who do we know of all people? You know, Jackie Robinson understood that he had a social responsibility. Uh, maybe he was thrust into it and didn't exactly... Um, he wasn't somebody who went after it, but he had no choice. Arthur Ashe, Muhammad Ali, um, today LeBron James. There, there are other athletes. There are many who have. On the flip side of that is there are athletes like Tiger Woods, and um, and probably most people would point to Michael Jordan, who said, "I don't, you know, <laughs> everybody spends green." And he did right. not want to alienate. I'm, I'm butchering his quote, but that yeah. is basically the essence of his comments, which is, no, and you have people like. Kaepernick, who who was really using their uh, celebrity, their athleticism to make a, a point of social meaning, whether you agree with it or not. That's right. And there were lots of people who, whether it was that or the, the Kaepernick situation and taking a knee during the national anthem, 
which I think was muddled and confused and interpreted incorrectly by a lot of people. Um, but there were people who say, shut up and dribble, or in his case, shut up and play football. I'm not paying to come and watch you make social commentaries on the field. Um, you know, my response would be then then don't go to the game. Um, I, I think that these athletes should be allowed to express themselves. Um, but that's my view. I don't own the team. If I'm an owner, maybe I feel differently the same way I would if I were, you know, an employer in any company. If you want to, if you want to have a voice about a social issue, go do it on your time. That, that, that may be a fair approach to the whole thing. All right. So just, you know, to turn this into a bit of therapy, but <laughs> there is an element of the rabbinic position here, right? There is no such thing as your time, the blending between personal and, Right. If someone sees the rabbi stumble drunk out of a bar at 2 a.m., no one's just saying, oh, well, he's on his time. I make no claim of the moral dimensions of that. Right. So for in, in a way, it's you step into the spotlight, as it were, the pulpit, the arena, and that makes a series of claims on you. And if you want to be a mild mannered, you know, uh, something else then uh, then choose your profession accordingly. I also find it very interesting that from the fan's perspective, that in many cases, I won't say all, but in many cases, there is so much um, adulation and uh, idolizing of these athletes. These are, you know, mm -hmm. people would give their left arm to get to the front of the line, to shake hands, to, to go break bread, if we will, okay. um, right? They, they would do anything to spend time with these athletes. But wait a minute. You have, a, you have a view on life. You have a view on something outside the lines of the courts. I don't want to hear it. And it doesn't work that right. way for me. I, I don't buy that. You don't, get, you don't get some of it without all of it. All right. So let me, let me go from the personality to uh, a present uh, day question, which is uh, hosting sites for, uh, for athletic events. I think right now there's a question of Qatar uh, hosting, I, I think it's uh, the soccer uh, games vis-a-vis um, -vis their record on human rights. And that, that's sort of a whole nother question of expectations of uh, the hosting countries. What, you know, is, is that fair um, uh, to have these expectations? A friend of mine asked me the other day, who actually teaches communications uh, at the university level, and he said he asked if I was going to watch the World Cup or was I, you know, protesting on the grounds of human rights? And I said, if I'm going to stand and protest on human rights because Qatar is holding the World Cup, there are a whole lot of other things I probably should step aside and stop watching or paying attention to. I take the same issue with the the live the the, the golf mm -hmm. tournament, uh, the golf um, tour that started up and funded by the Saudis. You know, when people were up in arms about these athletes going off and making themselves millions of dollars. Um, and who was funding it, it's like, well, listen, I, if you really want to get extreme, could we all survive if we didn't buy products from China that were made in China? I mean, where do you want to start and where do you want to stop? You know, it's, I get it. It's the argument, if we want to keep it in our world, you know, it's the argument that our parents and their parents made about buying, you know, German products. And I would never drive, you know, right. won't drive a German made car. Well, today, you know, those German-made cars are made here. They're Americans. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, there is a problem. Right, but, but, but just to, to play the, the rabbinic 
devil's advocate, right? We all, we all do need to do our part, right? So just because I'm not going to single-handedly solve the environmental crisis does not permit me not to recycle, right? <laughs> I still need to do whatever good citizenship in my own... Agree. Agree. And, and, and there is a history now of what is, you know, whitewashing in sports. Um, and, and the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, has been, I, I think, earned a notorious reputation for facilitating this by offering the games, if you will, to a lot of countries that have tried to clean up their image in human rights and other areas um, in, in geopolitics by providing them with the opportunity to host sporting events. And that was what Sochi and the Olympics were famous for doing. It's what Beijing has done and China has done with hosting these most recent Olympics. Um, listen, you can take a stand. You can say, I'm not going to watch. Are there enough people that will take that stand that it hurts the pocketbooks of the TV folks who are paying the rights for it? I don't know. But it, right. it's, certainly, it's certainly a legitimate argument. Right. All right, we're going to shift to uh, two baseball stories before we wrap up, or perhaps three, depending on timing. Number one, um, so this year, as New York fans, we were all watching Aaron Judge, and uh, you and I had an exchange on this on the high holidays um, about with an asterisk or without an asterisk, the quest, the players, Sosa, McGuire, Bonds, um, uh, are, is Judge in a different category, Aaron Judge and other players, or um, do, do we all just uh, put them all in the same grouping with, with Maris and everyone else in the home run chase? As my answer, I'm going to default and defer to the great Bob Costas, who is much more of a historian and knows baseball better than I do. And his response was that Barry Bonds is the home run, the all-time home run leader, period. And he is the record holder. That said, Aaron Judge did what he did. And so there, there's, there are the record books, and the record books should stand, but we can not necessarily have an asterisk, but we can also understand and appreciate what he accomplished in the, in the time that he did and the way he did it. Does that answer your question? It does. I'm not sure if I agree with it. Um, <laughs> I actually think that if someone is, um, you know, you know, doing something with an unfair advantage, um, I think that fundamentally changes the playing field. Uh, I think it is um, cause for um, consideration. In, in a world where there are records held and records broken. Sure, right? but, I, um, but, but doesn't that, the, the, the problem, not the problem, there are obviously illicit ways of gaining records and, and the way the game and evolution has changed records, right? When you hear people about, oh, he's thrown for more yards than anybody today, well, you look at the way the, the game of football has changed, can we really compare? I guess in a certain way, it's like Major League Baseball was almost league-sanctioned how Bonds and Sosa and McGuire did in the sense that, not necessarily sanctioned, but they certainly turned it a blind eye to what was going on. Sure. It's accepted across the league. So the records were the records for all of those. I mean, detrimental to the pitchers, perhaps, who gave up more home runs than anybody else had in those years. Um, and listen, I'm, I'm by no means am I floating an idea here that we don't know for sure that Aaron Judge has done it the right way. Everybody has just assumes that. I'm going to assume it too. 
he, he seems like a pretty wholesome guy. So, but I understand your point. If, if we all know and recognize today that things weren't done by the books, maybe there should be an asterisk. Right. So my favorite question to ask you, um, if all of a sudden you could wave a magic wand and every umpire, referee, calling of a strike zone could be automated uh, in a way that takes out human error. There was recently a piece in the New York Times about this. You've covered this question that every strike is a strike, every ball is a ball, and it's not up to you know whether the umpire had a, a speck of dirt in their eye at that moment. Would you, um, do you think that's good for the games? And here it's beyond just baseball, it's football, it's everything. Um, is that good for the games to take the human element out of umpiring? I'm getting a little tired of watching events that get slowed down, but that's, that's, that doesn't really answer your question. Um, I think you're asking me whether, is it important to get it right? I, or maybe it's the question of, Aaron, my wife always asks me this question, which is, is do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? <laughs> I don't know. I think that's, that's a different question. But, but I don't know okay. if it applies to sports, which is, you know, there are some people who, who are such traditionalists, dare I say, Tevia, tradition. There are people, particularly in baseball, right, who think that no matter how the world progresses, that it should stay the same. That, you know, there should be no pitch clock, which is going to come into play next year. We shouldn't widen the bases, which is going to happen next year. Um, and that, Umpires are umpires, and you don't know whether it's a ball or a strike until they make the call. And then there are others who would say, wait a second, why are we willing to use instant replay in certain situations, but it may be just as critical to know whether that was a strike or a ball in the last batter in, you know, right. in the bottom of the 10th inning with a running scoring position. So I think you either got to say, we're going to do it completely by technology, and we're going to look at every call which nobody right. really wants. And at this point, maybe wind it back a little bit. How All do you right. feel? I get the sense you do. You want umpires to make the calls. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. In, in a way, I was going to describe your position as a purist in the sense that you're either all in or you're not. But I, I actually think that the human element is, is what makes sports sports. And I would actually include the umpires on the field there. I think the, the, a subset of that conversation is the uh, question of instant replay, not just because it slows the game down, but about the ability to make a call on the field and have it stick. I think that for me, frustrating as it often is when you see a, a called third strike that was clearly not a strike or otherwise, um, all the more so when a game or a season is on the line, I actually think that's part of the social contract you buy into um, when you're participating in group sports or when you're watching group sports. Um, and I'm going to think about it, but I, I think it's part of the game. Uh, so Maybe I'll revise because, again, to, to cite Aaron, she always says, you've got to look at the gray. And I don't look at the gray enough. And maybe there is room for both. But I think you're right. And there are obviously lessons to be learned, whether you're an athlete or the umpire. I would say more case, more often the case of the athlete that, you know, that's part of the challenges and the disappointments of life. Right. You, you get called out looking and, yeah, it yeah. might live with you for a couple of years, but maybe there's a lesson to be learned from that. Yeah. And uh, absolutely. So uh, last question, John, uh, what. Uh, is, is your favorite Jewish sports story? 
Wow. Is it Koufax? Is it Greenberg? Is it uh, some athlete we haven't I, heard of? I, I, okay, can I give you a personal one? Yeah, that's even better. This, this is well. It's it's um, it relates to Koufax because I remember when Asher, our oldest, was still playing. Whether you want to call it uh, travel ball, local travel ball, and uh, at one point there was the um, proposal to play a game that fell on a high holiday. And I think it was Rosh Hashanah, not Yom Kippur. And I thought that for a team that I think of the 13 players, probably 11 of them were Jewish. I was trying to understand why it was so important for a bunch of 10-year-olds to play one more baseball game when it fell on Rosh Hashanah. And I invoked the Sandy Koufax story, saying that if it were good enough for Sandy Koufax to sit right. out playing in the World Series, our sons could miss playing one more baseball game even if, you know, because it fell on a high holiday. I think they would live with that. So I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's one that, that hits home. May, may it inspire many a young Jewish athlete. Um, John Frangle, award-winning uh, sports journalist from Real Sports with Brian Gumbel, a proud member of Park Avenue Synagogue. But I would remind people that John can be found on any given Friday night at Park Avenue Synagogue. And despite his celebrity, let the man open his door and pray along with everyone else. He's there not for an interview, but just to be a Jew in the pew. So thank you, John, for joining us. Thank you so much, Rabbi. I really appreciate it. So much fun. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul.